Hello, and welcome to the 37th episode of How Not to Suck at the Stocks. This is your host, Dan Hansen. This show is for entertainment purposes only and extremely not safe for work. Now, today's episode is on Netflix. Now, I'm trying something a little bit different this time. So, I'm recording a video that I'm going to put on YouTube. So, the link to the video is going to be in the podcast description if you're interested. If you're not, you're not missing much. It's going to be a half hour of, of Excel. But if you do want to kind of follow along with me as I go through the financial statements, uh, that's where you can find it. So, uh, well, let's, let's start off the way we always start off. Uh, number one, do I understand the business? Uh, yes, Netflix is a fairly simple business model. They have streaming videos online, and they charge you a monthly subscription to view all of that content. Uh, number two, is the company going to be around in 10 or 20 years? Uh, man, this is the big hang-up for me. Um, I used to be really strict about this, and then I started investing in Facebook and Google to where I can't honestly say people are going to search the same way they search today. I can't honestly say people are going to share pictures of their kids and memes the way they do today. Uh, so maybe I should practice what I preach. Um, but with Netflix, yeah, I mean, I really can't say they're going to be around in 20 years. And you might say, well, no company can you ever say that. Well, I mean, yeah, there, there are plenty. You can say Microsoft, Apple. You can say uh, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Disney, Berkshire Hathaway. There are plenty of companies that you know for a fact are going to be around in 20 years. Netflix... If you told me in 20 years Netflix is like this huge media conglomerate with their own like fucking theme parks and cruise lines, sure, I'd believe that. And if you told me that like, oh yeah, they got fucking bum rushed and they no longer are in business, you know, I, I'd believe that too. So I really don't know. Um, so that may stop me from buying the stock, but it's not going to stop me from analyzing it. The show must go on. Uh, the third thing is always, does the firm have any competitive advantages? And I'm really strict on these. This isn't just another checkbox on my list. Like, I, I'm really, really stodgy about handing these out. So uh, the four buckets that I use are cost leadership, uh, high switching costs, intangible assets, and network effect. Uh, so high switching costs. Of course not, right? You can cancel your Netflix subscription and go somewhere else and then jump back to Netflix. There's no switching costs at all. So that one's out. Intangible assets. So this includes things like brands, uh, patents, government monopolies. You might say, well, brand. Netflix is a hugely ubiquitous brand. Hey, you, you know, you want a Netflix and chill and, and all that jazz, as the, as the kids would say. Well, I would be careful because brands are the most misunderstood of the competitive advantages. Uh, just because a brand exists and it's easily identifiable and maybe popular doesn't mean it translates into sales. It either has to translate into pricing power or volume. If it if the brand doesn't affect the income statement, then it doesn't matter, okay? And so you might say, well, Netflix, it has a much higher price point than the competitors, and it has a way more subscribers. So there's your volume, right? So that must be the brand. And I would argue, I think that's the content. I think that's the content is why they're able to charge so much more and have so many more subscribers. Um, the only way we'll know is if there was another streaming service that was up to snuff, up to par with Netflix, and then Netflix could still charge more. But we don't have that yet. So like with Apple, 
Apple and Samsung, they make the same phone, essentially, but Apple can charge more. That's an example of the brand actually being worth something. So with Netflix, um, I, I don't know if that brand's worth anything. I think it's probably just the content. And the content is not a competitive advantage because anyone can come along and buy content. It, it is nothing unique to Netflix. And you might say, oh, well, what about uh, you know Stranger Things or House of Cards, all these all these shows that are unique to Netflix. Well, yes, but then, you know, Disney has the Mandalorian and, you know, all these different, all these different streaming services can have their own unique content. Just having unique content uh, is not a competitive advantage. All right. Uh, what else? Uh, so network effect. Um, I'm going to say no. So a network effect is where the utility of using the product goes up the more people that use it. And you might say, well, isn't there so much content on Netflix because there's so many subscribers on Netflix? So Netflix is able to subsidize the content costs over a larger number of subscribers. Yes, that's true, but I wouldn't say that's a network effect. I'm actually going to put that in the, the last bucket, which is cost leadership. Uh, semantics, perhaps, but it's just, just how I think of it. So yes, I will say... Netflix is able to subsidize their content costs over a larger amount of subscribers than their competitors. That is a fact. But what's also a fact is their competitors might just not care. So back in like the 90s and the 2000s, ESPN was able to muscle out the competition for all these big uh, sports um, contracts because of that reason, because they had so much, so many more subscribers. Uh, they could win the contracts and then still profit off them. But the problem that Netflix is facing is they're not going to be able to muscle out Amazon and Google and uh, Apple and Disney away from these uh, these content uh, contracts. I don't even know, I don't think you'd call them a content contract, but you know what I mean. Like whoever you know to buy the show or to, to buy the movie rights, the purchasing agreement. I don't know. I obviously don't work in showbiz. Uh, in any case, in any case, uh, let's continue. So. I should actually apologize in advance here. This is not, in case you couldn't tell, this is not going to be a very good Netflix analysis. It's really more about um, the procedure. I really just kind of wanted to show what do I look for? What are the type of things I look for when I'm reading through a report? Uh, what are the different calculations I make as far as the financial statements are concerned? Um, how do I think about forecasting? How do I go about evaluation? And Netflix is really more of just the example I'm using. Um so if you're looking for like some hot stock tip on what to do, you know, buy, sell with Netflix, you know, I have no idea. That's definitely not what this show is intended uh, to do. So, but what I do know is if you want to value a company, you're going to need to be able to forecast the revenues and the costs out into the future. That's how you're going to get uh, your cash flows in which to value the company. In order to be able to forecast the revenues out into the future, you're going to need to be able to know what the drivers of the revenues are. So the drivers of Netflix revenue are their subscribers and how much each subscriber is paying uh, per month. Now, what makes Netflix a little bit tricky is it is in 190 countries. So, well, actually, let's uh, let's jump to this S-curve here. And if, you, if you're not watching on YouTube, you can just kind of visualize an S-curve and you'll do fine. So on the far right of the S curve is where you're going to find America. So this is a mature market with slowing with single digit slow growth. Fair enough. Okay. 
center right of the S curve is where you're going to find perhaps uh, you know many parts of Europe, where you have still ludicrous growth, but the growth is decelerating. Meanwhile, left of center, this is where you're going to see your emerging markets, places like Africa, Middle East, um, Asia. They are not in um, China, Iran, uh, Crimea, which I've always found to be a major Crimea. <clears throat> so in these countries, the growth is insane and it may even be accelerating, cutting back. So take a look at the Asia-Pacific growth. So last year, 64%, the year before that, 57%, the year before that, 60%. So this kind of growth is unsustainable over the long term. So it has to mature, it has to converge to more in line where the, you know, America's growth is, 8%. It's just a matter of when. Uh, and so it's tricky to forecast. I'm, I will get to how I thought about the forecasting, uh, but, that, but that's going to be later. Meanwhile, uh, the monthly uh, subscription price, um, it's going to be highest in your more developed nations. So it actually ranges from $2 a month to $24 a month. If you live in a country where the Netflix subscription is $24 a month, please let me know. Do you live in Luxembourg? Do you live on the moon? Where does it cost 24 USD to watch uh, to watch Netflix? Um, and... And it's obviously lower in your uh, lower income uh, countries. I believe I referred to them as shithole countries in my previous uh, podcast. I felt kind of bad for calling them a shithole country. I mean, like, it's a term, but it's also kind of, yeah, a shithole. I mean, I guess they are, but it's, kind of, it's more sad than anything. Anyway. Where was I? So... One, the final point I want to bring up on, on this is the weighted average uh, subscription price can actually start to go down at some point as they enter into more and more lower income countries. And it stands reason that they first go into, you know, America, Canada, France, Germany, all these higher income countries, the low hanging fruit. But then as they start to, they, you know, they saturate those countries and they start to go into the more uh, lower income countries it stands to reason that this weighted average could even start to, to come down. Perhaps not from where it is today, but perhaps down from some future price point. Just something to be aware of. Okay, so costs of revenues. This is super important. So it's their biggest, biggest line item under costs. And the most important part of this line item is the amortization of content assets, which we're going to talk a lot about. I also just want to mention this also includes things like payroll, music rights, talent, that's people on the screen, as well as streaming delivery costs, which includes their own CDN. That's a content delivery network that they call Global Connect. The equipment and payroll that goes along with that, as well as what they pay Amazon to use their cloud service, AWS. They do not create their own data centers like Facebook and Google. Instead, their capex is in the form of content, uh, form of content acquisition. And so this is the first change calculation, whatever you want to call it, I make to the income statement. And you see here, adjusted cost of revenue. So how do I adjust for these cost revenues? I'm going to scroll down here. Okay, so we start with the cost of revenues. Then we subtract the amortization of content assets. We add payments for content assets, subtract appreciation, amortization of plants, property, equipment, and then add back purchases of property and equipment. 
This is a concept I got from Warren Buffett's 1987 shareholder letter, I believe. He refers to it as owner's earnings. And so the idea is that accrual accounting is going to lag actual cash expenditures. So when a company is spending a shitload of money on CapEx all of a sudden, it's not going to show up on the income statement right away. It's not going to fall to the bottom line right away. It's going to take time. I mean, like, think about it. When you depreciate an asset over many years, it's going to take time for that to fall to the bottom line. Let's go to uh, the cash flow statement here. And so you can see where I got these numbers from. Um, so additions to content assets, change in liabilities, I add those together. I get payments for content assets. Uh, you also have the amortization of content assets. So the, the amortization part, that's what shows up on the income statement. Okay. Um, at least as far as it's one of the components to the cost of revenues line item that does show up on the income statement. And, uh, but I, I adjust it to, uh, so I want the, what they actually paid for the content, not just what they amortize for the content. And the other part about depreciation, they have so little, uh, PP and E that that's really just more of an afterthought. The, for, for a company like Facebook or Google, their PP and E capital X are, insane because of these data centers these are these huge numbers which again are not falling to the bottom line so it's kind of um uh, inflating inflating their income but in any case so that's the that's the first calculation uh i make so you have the adjusted uh cost of revenues and then look that it really makes a huge difference so here you have the reported net income so 2.7 billion last year, 1.9 billion the year before that, 1.2 the year before that. But when you look at, and when you when you account for how much they, they spend on content, uh, you'll see last year was the first time they actually made money according to my uh, calculations. Before then, they'd always lost billions of dollars. Um, and... The only reason they made money this last year is because, well, let's go back to the cash flow statement, uh, is because their payments for content assets was down. So if you look at this line item here, in 2016, it was at 7 billion, uh, 2017, it was at 9 billion, 12 billion, 14 and a half, and then 12 and a half. Well, why did it suddenly go down in 2020? Because of COVID. If it wasn't for COVID, uh, that number would be uh, much, much higher. In fact, let's let's keep looking in my uh, spreadsheet here. So I have this. Uh, Okay, so payments for content assets per sub. In 2017, I had it about $90 per sub. Uh, then in 2018, it's about 97, uh, 96, and then last year, only 66. So did Netflix decide, oh, we want to save money this year, and this is how it's going to be going forward? No, it was a blip in the radar. They had to shut down production of all sorts of TV shows and movies, and that's why you're getting a reprieve, and that's why they finally... Um, turned a profit. Again, this is according to my adjusted uh, net income figure. And so this kind of stuff is very important because uh, if you just look up a company in Yahoo Finance, it's not going to tell you that. It's just going to show a PE and you're going to look at it and go, oh, wow, that PE is really low. I should buy this company. It's like, well, is it really low or is it just low because the earnings are being goosed? Another example, I think I brought this up previously, uh, but recently Disney had $5 billion just thrown to their bottom line uh, because they were able to write up their Hulu acquisition. 
And it was just a counting gobbledygook. The company wasn't any more profitable than it was before. In fact, you could argue it was less because they owned more of Hulu than they had previously. Uh, but that $5 billion hit the bottom line, and some websites will account for extraordinary items. I'm not like making up the concept of extraordinary items. It's just certain uh, websites won't. And so it's really important to just look at the numbers yourself. Go to the source material. All right, so we're actually going to bounce out of the income statement and go to uh, the balance sheet. So the calculation that I do on the balance sheet, I really just want to figure out the net cash. So, pardon me. Uh, what is cash? So I count cash and cash equivalents. I add short-term investments, long-term investments, and then I take out short-term and long-term debt, and I end up with uh, the company's net cash position. In Netflix's case, they actually uh, have a net debt position of $8 billion. I believe their market cap last I checked was $225 billion. So I would just tack on that $8 billion onto the cost. It's like if I bought a condo for $225,000, and as soon as I buy it, oh, I have to pay $8,000 to the HOA because they're going to install you know, a new roof or whatever. It's the same concept. Um, one concept I do want to discuss... Oh, this actually goes back to the income statement. I'm bouncing around quite a bit here. Pardon me. Uh, so there's another adjustment I make on the income statement... Uh, let's see. I take out interest and other income. So this is mainly composed of things like Forex and interest on cash. I don't care. So for example, last year they lost $660 million just in currency trades. It's like, I, I, I just don't care. Like that That's not something that's going to happen every year. It's probably just going to mostly cancel out to some negligible number. I'm not going to let some huge swing in any given year affect my baseline that I'm going to use to forecast. Um, what else? Oh, uh, the interest. On the, so this is the interest they have on cash. So I prefer to value cash using more of a balance sheet method than an income state method. So I want to give you an example. Let's say you have a dildo machine. And there's two ways to value this dildo machine. You can make it produce dildos for you, and you can sell those dildos, and you get cash from the sale of those dildos as an ongoing concern. That's one way. The other way is you could sell the dildo-making machine to the pervert down the street and get, you know, like a, that's the dildo machine's liquidation value. Okay. You can do either one, but the trick is you can only do one. You can't do both. If you want to continue to make dildos and sell them for a profit and collect the cash as an ongoing concern, you can't sell it to the pervert down the street. And if you sell it to the pervert down the street, he's going to get the cash flows, not you. So you have to pick and choose. So with the cash, I choose to value it as a balance sheet method, which is essentially a dollar of cash is worth a dollar. Um, you can get a little more technical than that, but I think that's uh, good enough for my purposes. So anyway, that's why I back out uh, the interest and other income on the income statement. Okay. Going back to the balance sheet. Uh, let's see. Well, one point I want to make is a lot of times you're going to see things like other, other current assets. I always write a question mark to the, next to that. I'm always looking to see what is in the other. They actually break it down. Trade receivables, which is for them, it's like, just money they're going to get in a month anyway because of their business model. 
prepaid expenses, and then even more others. Just other all the way down. Uh, but here, uh, content assets. Here they break down licensed versus produced. So they're moving away from licensed content, which is buying content from third parties, and they're going more towards producing their own. Uh, that's good in the long term uh, because licensed content comes up for renewal. Uh, third parties can jack up the price. They can you know, keep it from you. Uh, etc. But with produced content, you get to own it, and there's no you know different rights in different countries. You just uh, you have it. Um, but produced content costs more upfront. And I don't know where else I'd mention this, but I, I do actually. I guess I'd probably mention it down here. Okay, so this is uh, their content liabilities. You can see most of it is due. Uh, in less than one year. Another point I want to make is their total content liabilities is over 19 billion, but only, I think it was like only 7 billion of this actually shows up on the balance sheet. Um, and another interesting statistic is something like 90% of the amortization cost is within the first four years, which makes a lot of sense. Because TV shows and movies do not have a long product cycle. Um, you know, a, a TV show can be all the rage and then no one ever fucking thinks of it again just a few years later. I want to adjust this microphone. It's probably going to make a shitty sound. This looks like a phallic penis, just all droopy like that. Uh, let's see. Oh, well, you might say, well, how come I'm not counting content liabilities in with my net cash? Like, isn't that debt? They're obligated to pay that money. How is that any different than a debt obligation? Well, the, I'm glad you asked, straw man inside my head. Uh, the reason is, is the debt is not necessarily a core part of their business as an ongoing concern, whereas the content is. You'd be concerned if they didn't have any content liabilities. They, they're a, a movie company, for Christ's sake. Uh, you'd want them to have movies in the pipeline. You know, if I bought uh, a business that sells apple pies, I would want them to have contracts on the books for their supplies. That that's a good thing. It's not it's not a bad thing. Um, but but this content is really expensive. And let's go back to the income statement here. No, actually, that's not. This is. Well, let's not, let's not get to forecasting just yet. No, we will get to forecasting. Okay, let's get to forecasting. Fine. All right. Uh, boy. <laughs> so, I'm not proud of what I've done, but I've done something, and I want to walk you through the thought process of how I forecast uh, the number of subscribers for, for Netflix. So, my first thought was, how big can the fishbowl get? So here's the thought process I went through. Let's go to my stats tab. There are 126 million households in America. Why households and not population? Well, because by virtue of the way the product works, you typically just share it with people in your household. There's going to be 146 expected household in America by 2030. And I like to just link to where I got that from. Um, let's see. Right now, there's only about 110 uh, 
households with the internet in America, I think, which is about 87% of all the households, in 10 years, that number is essentially going to be 100% as far as I'm concerned. Um, they currently have 66,000, uh, sorry, pardon me, 66 and a half million subscribers. So their penetration in America is about 60%. Okay. Um, but where is it going? Well, I tried to key off cable TV. So there's a hundred million households in 2013. There was a hundred million households in America with cable TV out of 123 million households total. So cable had an 81% penetration rate. Okay. Well, what if we give that 81 penetration rate to, uh, to Netflix, which I don't think is too crazy. If people would spend a hundred dollars a month for cable, why wouldn't they pay $100 a month for streaming and then Netflix would just be a component of that? So if we do this crazy math, we end up with 119 million domestic subscribers uh, by 2030. All right, my more astute uh, viewers will notice I am forgetting about Canada. I'm not forgetting about Canada. I just don't care. Uh, moving on. Uh, so key... Continuing to key off uh, the TV subscribers thing, there were a billion of them in the world in 2019, or sorry, 2018. So I decided to back out the American number of 119, back out the China number, and I get uh, a $714 million total addressable market. I'm being last and loose with the times here. I get it. I mean, I told you, I wasn't proud of what I'm doing here. I'm just trying to get some anchor on reality. So you add those together, 119 in America, 714 internationally. You end up with about 830 uh, total subscribers in 10 years. That comes out to about a 17% growth rate from where you are today. Well, I never did find the Kager. I'm not going to find it. It's, it's going to be like 16 is in the Kager. Maybe 15 is going to be the Kager. In any case. Okay, so again, I'm not proud. I really just wanted to throw something together for the presentation. If I was really going to invest in the company, I'd you know I'd spend weeks, months thinking about this and trying to get the forecast. Uh, I'd really try to nail down what the best kind of basis uh, for it is. But for the purpose of this presentation, it's just going to have to be good enough. Uh, moving on to the average revenue uh, per subscriber. Um, I'm kind of embarrassed with what I did for this one. Uh, I really just pulled 13 out of my ass. I said, there's really no logic to it at all. I just said, if it's anywhere from 2 to 24 today, why don't we just find the average of that and call it 13? Yeah, that one's, uh, that's really a bullshit assumption. And, which is, it, that could be higher. I'm actually really bullish on how much people are going to spend for subscriptions, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go through. I'm already going way long on time, but that's fine. Um, think about it like this: so we know people already spend a hundred dollars a month on cable, at least here in America. Okay, so why wouldn't they spend a hundred dollars a month on streaming? And I don't just mean like Netflix, but just like you know, for an aggregate, you know, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, etc. Okay. 
So we know a streaming bundle is going to be worth at least $100 by virtue of the fact Americans spend 100 bucks on cable. Fine, okay. But streaming doesn't have commercials. And I think not having a commercials is a ridiculously valuable proposition. And I want to walk you through the math. Okay, so the average hour of content on cable television has about 40 hours, sorry, 40 minutes of actual content and 20 minutes of commercials. Okay. I just looked this up. The average American, ages 18 and over, watches four hours of television every day. Okay. Four hours every day. You time that by 30 days, that's 120 hours a month watching television. Okay. A third of that is commercials. That comes out to 40 hours of commercials every day. Now, let's say you value your time. What's a good proxy for how the average American values his time? I'm just going to use minimum wage. It's probably higher than that because only drug addicts get minimum wage, but we're going to use minimum wage. Okay, that means that that's a $300 value to you. Sometimes in the 40 hours, uh, by the seven and a half dollars per hour that you value your time. Now you might say, Dan, this is a bunch of bullshit. I don't actually sit there watching every commercial. I, I change the channel. I get up to take a shit, etc. So here I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it in half. Okay, that's $150 a month to save commercials. But except here's the kicker: each household isn't just you. It actually each household is about two and a half people. So we're back up <laughs> to saving you $375 worth of your household's time on top of the $100 you know you already spend on cable. That's a $475 value. Now, let's let's be serious. Do I think people are going to spend nearly $500 a month on TV? No. But we know from economics that... When incredible value is made from a trade, both sides get some portion of that value. So what I'm with with the commercial thing, I'm saying that $375 worth of value is no longer going to the advertisers. Instead, it's getting split up between you, the consumer, and Netflix, the company, or the streaming services, uh, more correctly. So. That's why I'm so bullish. So even if consumers get the vast majority of that value, uh, the companies are still going to capture something. And so I'm extremely bullish on the subscription prices going forward. It's not really being represented with my $13 a month estimate. It's only a, a 2% growth rate. But uh, well, that's the, that's the shit forecast I've put together. That's the shit forecast we're going to go with. Uh, next up is cost of revenues. This this is why I wouldn't touch this company with a fucking 10-foot pole. So their adjusted cost of revenues as a percent of revenues in 2016 was 95%, then 93, 92, 89. Last year, it was down to 70 for the reasons we discussed earlier. I'm saying, fuck it. I'm going to say their adjusted cost of revenues goes down to 50%. Okay, which is super, super nice of me. I'm being a nice guy. They can like hear me getting drunk over the course of this half hour podcast. It's just one glass of whiskey. I'm just a lightweight. 
Um, but the thing is, so if we live in a world where Netflix has $125 billion in revenue, and this number is just derived from timesing uh, the 833 million subscribers times the $13 a month, if we live in a world where Netflix has that many subscribers, is it really crazy they're going to spend $65 billion a year on content? I think Disney spent about $25 billion a year not that long ago. So they'd be spending uh, they'd be spending a shitload. But if they're going to be this huge streaming giant that everyone thinks they're going to be, they're going to have to paint the Pied Piper. They're going to have to have something on and that's why I'd stay away. I, w- I would stay away for this reason, because I don't see the operational leverage. I think it's an extremely capital-intensive business. But in any case, let's let's just keep going. Uh, marketing, I did a... I mean, you can call all my forecasts naive if you wish. Um, oh, this just shows advertising and payroll goes into it. I meant to do this. As a percent of revenues, so looking back at where it's been, I'm going to say, fine, it's going to be 12% of revenues going forward. Super naive. The other tech and development... This one's also going to pop R&D out, so don't be too surprised. Um, it's been 8% historically. I'm going to say it's going to be 8% going forward. Again, just super naive forecast. Uh, interest expense, same thing. It's been about 2%. I'm just going to... Oh, 3%, pardon me. I'm going to have it project out 3% going forward. Okay, fine. So anyway, so I get uh, my adjusted operating income. Um, actually... I chose 20% as the effective tax rate. The problem is, if you... They really don't have a long history of paying taxes with, like, a normal income stream. because So it's kind of hard to predict where they'd fall, and then taxes are about to change because Biden's going to bump it up from 21 to 28, and whatever, I'm giving them a 20%. This is why I think you should probably do pre-tax calculations, but here we are. Anyway, so you get my adjusted uh, net income, and it's, this spits out into the future, and you end up with an 18% margin, which this is for a company that's never been profitable. Okay, they've never been profitable, um, according to my calculations, except for last year when their costs were artificially deflated. Um, so looking at this, so with these assumptions... So based off the $125 billion uh, revenue in 2030 and based off the 18% net profit margin and giving them uh, a future PE of 40. So I don't, I I hate terminal values. I think it's a bunch of bullshit. Um, At least exit multiples. I mean, yeah, okay, how do you know what the multiple is going to be in uh, 10 years? You don't, but you can at least figure out what it might be reasonably. So even if it isn't that, you can at least have a you know a one foot in reality as opposed to none with terminal value uh, so that gives you a future market cap of just under a trillion as composed to its uh, present one of about 230 and that gives you about a 15 percent growth rate um yes if you could tell me that if i bought netflix today i'll get a 15 percent growth rate on my money uh of course i would do it the problem is if you if you go back through all my forecasts like Netflix basically has to take over the world for this to happen. They they basically need to just fucking win the streaming wars against people who have a shitload of money and probably aren't under a lot of pressure not to spend a shitload of money. Um, 
And I don't know. I think it's priced to perfection. But I also am willing to admit that my analysis is subpar and I should not trust any uh, conclusion that I draw from it. If I wasn't going to do this video, I would have never put this much in to my model. Um, I would have stopped as soon as I saw what they're paying for content. As soon as I saw that they were paid $14.5 billion in 2019 off revenues of $20 billion, I'd have said, I'm getting the fuck out of here. It's an extremely capital. And I, I think I think people just get in their heads, oh, it's a tech company, it must be capital light. Facebook, Google, and Netflix, well, and of course, Amazon and Apple, these are extremely capital intensive businesses. Maybe not Apple so much. I shouldn't throw them in there. I'm sorry, Apple. It's been a bad breakup. But in any case, well, that's been my uh, half-assed analysis of Netflix. Um, thank you very much for watching. I hope you learned something. Um, Feel free to leave comments below. I'm always looking for ways to get better. Uh, tell me what you like. Tell me what sucked. Uh, you know, yada, yada, yada. I'd appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye.